Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So in Jeremiah chapter 37, um, there's uh, three, actually we're going through three of the chapters, 37, 38, and 39. And uh, there's three main characters, and there's a lot of names mentioned in Jeremiah 37 through 39. But there's three main characters that we're going to be looking at this morning. Of course, Jeremiah naturally, right? He's the author of the, of the book of Jeremiah, and uh, he plays prominently in uh, just about every single chapter in the book of Jeremiah. So naturally, he's one of the characters the next character is the king, uh, the last king of Judah, which is King Zedekiah. And uh, we'll, we've talked about him in the past because some of the prophecies, the chapters, they're not in chronological order, so they've kind of jumped around, and we've talked about Zedekiah a little bit. But we're going to be looking at his character this morning. And then another guy is Ebed-Melech. And he might be a little less well-known to you. Of course, Jeremiah, everyone knows he was a bullfrog. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we, <laughs> he wasn't a bullfrog. Um, but, you know, so Jeremiah we all know about. And we probably have heard of Zedekiah before. Um, but Ebed-Melech we probably haven't heard, unless you've read the book of Jeremiah. And so, But we'll be looking at his character as well. Um, we're going to see a contrast between cowardice and heroics this morning. Um, I have a quote for you. It says, Great occasions do not make heroes or cowards. They simply unveil them to the eyes of men. Silently and perceptibly as we wake or sleep, we grow strong or weak. And, and last, some crisis shows what we have become. And I think we'll see that as we go through this chapter uh, particularly in the case of Zedekiah, we're going to see uh, just there's, there's a development, there's this character, and when the crisis hits, we'll see how he responds to that crisis, whether he responds heroically or in cowardice. And so we'll look at that this morning. So, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 37. Now King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. Now, Jehoiakim was one of the sons of, of Josiah. Zedekiah was as well. But Jehoiakim became king when uh, Josiah died. He was a very wicked king of Judah. And uh, Jeremiah chapter 27, when we were in that chapter, there was a prophecy God made against Jehoiakim. And so anyways, when Jehoiakim was hauled off to Babylon and he died uh, either on the way outside of Jerusalem or when he got to somehow outside of the city anyways, and he wasn't given even a pr proper burial, um, according to the prophecy, his son Coniah, or we also know him as Jeconiah, uh, became king. But he only reigned for three year, uh, excuse me, three months. Um, Jer uh, Jeremiah chapter 22, uh, the prophecy continues and speaks about Coniah as well. And uh, he and his mother and many nobles were dragged off to, to uh, Babylon during that time. And Zedekiah then was placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. Who was Zedekiah? Well, as I mentioned already, he was the last king of Judah. Uh, he was uh, a son of Josiah. His name actually was Mataniah, but Nebuchadnezzar, when he put him on the throne, renamed him and gave him the name of Zedekiah. 
He reigned for over Judah for 11 years. And although he was placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar, partway through his reign, he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Um, So that's a little bit about him. Verse 2. But neither he, speaking about Zedekiah, nor his servants, nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had prophesied all these things that were literally taking place in front of uh, uh, Zedekiah's eyes. I mean, he saw Jehoiakim, or excuse me, he saw Jeconiah going, you know, three months hauled off to Babylon. And even seeing those things, you would think it would have been a warning for Zedekiah, but it didn't faze him at all. And neither he nor the people gave heed to the words of the Lord. Verse 3. And Zedekiah the king sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Masiah. It's not the, the Zephaniah that wrote the, the prophecies, by the way, in the book of Zephaniah. It's a different person. Um, Zephaniah, the son of Masiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Pray now to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. So what's taking place here is the Babylonians have built a siege around Jerusalem. They're choking them out. They're eventually going to uh, invade Jerusalem. But during that time, Pharaoh's armies from Egypt come up north to Jerusalem to go ahead and try to, uh, you know, rescue uh, Israel, rescue Judah, because they had tried to make an, a, an alignment with Egypt. And Pharaoh's army, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar's army, they heard news that the, the Egyptians were coming, so they temporarily left the siege of Jerusalem to go down to take on the Egyptians. And it was during this time, maybe Zedekiah thought God was finally going to deliver Jerusalem. After all, that's what all these false prophets kept saying. Um, and so here he's asking for God's blessing. So now we're looking at Zedekiah's character, and it shows us Zedekiah at least had some regard for God, right? I mean, he had a little bit. I mean, you know, he wanted God, uh, he wanted to uh, have prayers said over him. But however, even though he might have had regard or some regard for God, it wasn't enough to turn him from his sin and to follow God wholeheartedly. He would gladly take Jeremiah's prayers for blessing, but he would not take Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's counsel for repentance. There's a lot of people today, you know, you, you, they'll say, you know, pray for me, pray this. You know, we've got, we have a person, uh, I don't believe she has a relationship with the Lord, but she calls us all the time and says, will you pray for me? And, and you know, of course, we'll pray for her. We'll pray for her salvation. But we also pray for her, you know, situation. But, you know, that's a common thing. People say, oh, just pray for me. You know, and, and they want God's blessings in their life, but they don't want to follow Him. They don't want to surrender their lives to Him. They just want the blessings. This is, gives us a little bit of a glimpse into Zedekiah's heart at this time. Verse 6. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt to their own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back, 
and fight against this city and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up, every man in his tent, and burn this city with fire. So in other words, God is saying, don't deceive yourselves, guys. I have determined to destroy the city by the fire and by sword. And you, you, know, you look at that and go, wow, I thought God was a God of love. That seems kind of harsh. Well, it may sound harsh, but you need to realize something. This destruction of Jerusalem was 20 years in the making. Babylon had come. He had, they had surrounded Jerusalem. They had come and back and forth. They had taken kings away for 20 years. Nebuchadnezzar could have wiped out Jerusalem at first, the first time he came, but he didn't. In fact, the first time he came, all he did was he exacted tribute. He basically wanted money, a tax, basically. On, on, you know, he would leave them alone as long as they would pay a tax to them. It was during the very first time that Nebuchadnezzar uh, came to Jerusalem that Daniel, as a young man, was taken back into Babylon during that first, the, the very beginning of those 20 years. And if you follow, and we'll get to the book of Daniel eventually, um, Daniel becomes a friend and actually a trusted advisor of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's quite possible that Daniel may have had a restraining influence on Nebuchadnezzar. It's possible. But, you know, the kings, including Zedekiah and all these other ones, they kept rebelling from Babylonian rule. And they kept trying to make an alliance with Egypt against Babylon. And so this may very well have forced Nebuchadnezzar's hand politically. You know, that's, this, that's like, this is all, you know, I'm just guessing, right? And, and it's, it's a worldly perspective, a political perspective. But there was a spiritual perspective. From God's perspective, during those 20 years, He had kept sending Judah prophets, urging them to repent, warning them of the consequences if they didn't turn from their wickedness. And the kings and the people, they refused to listen to God's word and they continued to resist Him. So now we're here at the end of those 20 years. We're very close to the end of 20 years of God, you know, over and over and over again, trying to urge them to repent. And finally, God says, I've determined that this is going to happen. Nothing is going to prevent this from happening. Verse 11, And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out, to Jerus went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there, whose name was Rijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are defecting to the Chaldeans. Then Jeremiah said, False, I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him. So Erijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah and they struck him. Now that sounds like they just hit him. But that word struck means that they actually beat him. And they put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. You know, back in a few chapters earlier, Jeremiah had been told by the Lord to buy his relative's field at Anathoth, the, the home, his hometown. 
And uh, it could have been related to that. You know, the, the, the Babylonians had left the siege temporarily, and Jeremiah, or maybe just because he was hungry, whatever, you know, I'm going to go back to this land and to my hometown and, and uh, kind of settle some affairs or whatever. We don't really know. Scripture doesn't really tell us what actually took place or why. But, you know, Jeremiah's message to the people of Judah from the Lord all this time was, you guys need to surrender to the king of Babylon. Just surrender. You're going to go into captivity, but you're going to be all right. I'm going to, I'm going to deliver you, you know, and in due time I'll bring you back into the land. Just surrender. Submit. And uh, so they considered Jeremiah's message from the Lord as treason. You know, it's like, who's going to... Who tells their people to surrender to the, to the enemy? I mean, that sounds treasonous. And so here Jeremiah is leaving Jerusalem, and Elijah spots him and goes, Oh, man, he's defecting to the Babylonians. And so they seize him, and uh, they beat him, and they throw him into the scribe's jail. Now, in those days, uh, jails were part of an official's house. And so this guy's a scribe, and part of his house was set up as a jail. And so Jeremiah was thrown into that jail. Verse 16 when Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, uh, when Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah the king sent him, excuse me, sent and took him out, and the king asked him secretly in his house and said, "Is there any word from the Lord?" Now that word, the Hebrew word dungeon, it literally means a pit or a cistern. And so you have this pit or the cistern, and you know houses in those days had cisterns. So they probably converted the cistern, you know, a place where they would have stored water. They 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 converted that to the prison, but it had cells within the cistern, uh, which that word cells is the Hebrew word vault, and it actually comes from a Hebrew word meaning to bend over. And according to John Gill, the Targum interprets this to mean into the innermost and worst part in all the prison where a man could not well lie, sit, nor stand. So if you take all that and you can just imagine Jeremiah is thrown into this cistern under this house. And not only that, but he's put into this little, like a crawl space on the side of the cistern where he can't really sit down. He can't, you know, he's just crouched in this spot and he's left there for many days. The probably the many days refers to the entire time when the Babylonians were gone, you know, fighting Egypt. And, uh, and then when they came back and renewed their siege on Jerusalem, Zedekiah is probably alarmed. I mean, oh, they're back, you know, the, the Babylonians are back. And he's got the only true prophet of the Lord in prison. So, you know, it's possible at this point, that's why he released him. But in any event, he has Jeremiah released from prison, and he secretly asks him. Now, these words, they start describing Zedekiah's character. He secretly asks Jeremiah if there is any word from the Lord. I mean, listen, this guy's the king. Who does he need to be afraid of? But he's secretly asking Jeremiah. For all Jeremiah knows, of course, Zedekiah is going to get angry with the word that he gives him, and he's going to throw him right back into that dungeon again. Now, if it had been you or me, and we were in that position, and we knew what the Lord was going to say to Zedekiah, would we say it just like, you know, the way we've been saying it? Or would we go, you know what, I've been cramped up in that. I, I can't handle that anymore. I don't want to go back into there. 
wouldn't it be kind of tempting to kind of like soft pedal the message just a little bit? Maybe change, just word it a little bit so he doesn't get, just, we don't want him to get angry. We'll just tell him, you know, hey, God's not really happy with you. You know, there's just some things you need to change in your life. You know, it'd be tempting to, to, to kind of change the message, right? Well, we look at Jeremiah's character. Jeremiah, he can't change the message. He's faithful to God. And so when he's asked, is there any word from the Lord? Verse 17 continues, and Jeremiah said, yes, there is. Then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. (laughs) Well, that's it, you know. Hey, the message didn't change, right? Truth doesn't change. People today are trying to get, you know, they're trying to rearrange things and change things so that the truth fits their lifestyles, you know. So they think truth is subjective, and truth isn't. Truth never changes. Truth is always the truth. Jeremiah's boldness here stands in stark contrast to Zedekiah's timidity, timidity, however you want to call it, um, where he's secretly asking. Verse 18, Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, "What What offense have I committed against you, against your servants, or against this people that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Now Jeremiah even takes it one step further, and he's reminding Zedekiah that all the other prophets were false, lying prophets. This is another testimony against Zedekiah. He should have looked at the, the words that the false prophets said and said, Hey, you know what? It's not happening. The way that the, the Babylonians are back, and he would... You should have listened to what Jeremiah said and go, wow, he's the, he's the true prophet. I better start heeding what he says. But he didn't. Verse 20, Therefore, please hear now, O my Lord the King. Please let my petition, my petition be accepted before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. I mean, Jeremiah was pretty desperate. It was, it was miserable conditions there. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison and that they should give him a daily piece of bread from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So, you know, it sounds like I'm really coming down on Zedekiah. And we look at him here, you know, he's showing some kindness to Jeremiah. You have to give him credit for that at least. But he still still fails to heed the word of the Lord. And so here Zedekiah is still confined, but now it's kind of like a medium security facility. You know, he's, he's in the court there. He's, so he's able to move around and probably, you know, he's out in the sunshine. He's able to converse with other people because in that other chapter, people were able to come and talk to him and stuff. Um, and, you know, here again, you've gone from a real miserable situation and now you've been put into this you know, granted, you're still confined, but it's definitely better conditions than what, where you were. Wouldn't it be tempting again to kind of lay low? It's like, okay, I'm here. I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna write out my time here. They already, they've heard my prophecies. I'm, I'm, not, I'm done. I, I've, I've been faithful. I've said what I need to say. Now I'm just gonna write it out until the Babylonians come and do all that they're gonna do. I'm gonna play it safe. I, I, I'm talking about my character. I'd be tempted to do that. But Jeremiah, rather than playing it safe and keeping silent, he can't help but warn the people. He can't help but say, hey guys, there's destruction coming. Verse 38, 
or excuse me, chapter 38, verse 1. Now, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of, or Gedalipha, no, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son, I love these words, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people. See, he's talking to the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. So Babel, or excuse me, Jeremiah's in this court and he's, he's preaching to the people. He's not laying low. Therefore the princes said to the king, Please let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. And now again we get another glimpse into Zedekiah's character. Then Zedekiah the king said, Look, he's in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. Wow. What a weak, pathetic king. I mean, he's kind to Jeremiah. He respects Jeremiah, but he fears the princes more. Those who were supposed to be in subjection to him, those who were supposed to be subordinated to him, he's more afraid of them than God's prophet. Zedekiah is very much like Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate found nothing deserving of death in Jesus, but it says, but for fear of the Jews, he gave in to their demands. See, that's a character trait, fear. And, 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 and operating and walking in fear and, and letting fear define how you respond to people and, and the choices that you make being driven by fear. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Verse 6. So now the princes again, they have control over Jeremiah. The king's not going to do anything. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. So again, this would have been a cistern. Maybe it was more recently drained of its water, or you know the water's expended, whatever. It's dark. It's probably cold. Certainly wet. And he's just thrown in there, and who knows how deep he was, just sitting there in the mud. And if you've ever been in a situation, I've never been thrown in a dungeon, but you know, if you've ever been in a, in a situation, that saps the heat and the energy and the strength out of your body. And he's already malnourished to begin with. And so this guy, I mean, he's just, he's going to die in there. Verse 7. Now we are introduced to Ebed-Melech. Now Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord, the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. So here we have this new character, Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, he sees a wicked injustice being committed and he's the only one 
But he has enough courage to say, hey, wait a minute, this is wrong. This is sin. This is wickedness. And he's in a comfortable position. You know, he's in the king's court and all that. And yet he risks all that and goes to the king and says, hey, these guys have done a great wickedness. Jeremiah is going to die. So rather than cowering or being afraid, he, does, he sees a wicked injustice. He does something about it. He speaks up. Now, I find it fascinating that the Bible tells us that Ebed-Melech is the Ethiopian eunuch. The reason why I find that interesting is because throughout the Bible, certain Gentiles are typically portrayed in a favorable light in the Bible. It's, it's amazing. If you ever do a study, do a study on the Roman centurions in the Bible. You'll find that typically the Roman centurions, they're not cast in a very negative light in the Bible. They're typically cast in a positive light. Ethiopian eunuchs, he's not the, old, he's not the only Ethiopian mentioned in the Bible. They're the Queen of Sheba. We have the Ethiopian eunuch got, that got saved by Philip there on the road uh, heading out of Jerusalem. These people, they're Gentiles. They're outside of the blessings of the nation of Israel. And yet, when they exhibit faith or mercy, God takes special care to note them in the Bible. I think that's interesting. I think we should pay attention to that. God's not a respecter of persons. God sees their hearts. And He goes, hey, I like that. I like what I see. And He makes note of it so that you and I would read about Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian. Verse 10. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here 30 men with you. See, take 30 men, right? And lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men of, with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took from there old clothes and old rags and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these uh, old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Verse 14. Then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, you will not listen to me. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives, who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of those men who seek your life. I mean, he sounds like a Christian. <laughs> you know, they weren't Christians back then, but he sounds like a follower of God. Verse 17. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. This city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hands. All that Zedekiah needs to do is surrender. That's all he needs to do. He just needs to finally stop resisting the Lord's will in his life and finally say, you know what, Lord, I surrender. 
I, I'm just going to follow you. I give up. That's all that God wanted Zedekiah to do. And if Zedekiah had just surrendered to the Babylonians, God would let Zedekiah and his house live. Now that doesn't mean his house where he goes to. That means his family. God says, if you surrender, Zedekiah, if you submit to my will, I'm going to let your family survive. Not only that, but he would spare the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants from the fire and the sword. There's, you see, there's a lot riding on Zedekiah right now. If he would just choose to submit and surrender to the Lord, all these other people wouldn't have these bad things happen to him. But now we get another glimpse into Zedekiah's character, verse 19. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord which I speak to you. So it shall be well with you and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to surrender... This is what the word of the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left in the, king's, uh, in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes. And those women shall say, Your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Your feet have sunk in the mire, and they have turned away again. So they shall surrender all your wives and children to the Chaldeans. You shall not escape from their hand, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. Wow. All of that's writing on Zedekiah. Zedekiah was afraid to surrender to the Lord. He was afraid of the princes of Jerusalem who had been, uh, you know, they were subordinated to him. And he was also afraid of what the Jews who had gone to Babylon before him would do or what they might do. And so... He did nothing. Herodotus, as an old historian, he's dead, by the way, <laughs> wrote this, It is better by noble boldness to run the risk of being subject to half of the evils we anticipate than to remain in cowardly listlessness for fear of what might happen. And that's so true. We're so afraid of what might happen, and so then we, we just say, well, I'm not going to do anything because I'm afraid of what happens. And, and he says, you know, you'd be better off just, you know, even, even having half of what you fear happen to you and to go out boldly and do it rather than just, you know, do nothing. And so often people get paralyzed by fear. Now, Zedekiah, he was a kind guy. He wasn't a cruel guy. I mean, he was nice to Jeremiah. He had some respect for Jeremiah. He even had some respect for God's word but he was a gutless leader. Jay Patterson writes, he had a wishbone where a backbone should have been. And what I find fascinating about this, Zedekiah was gutless, and then he was stubborn on top of that, though. He was still stubborn. He refused to submit to God, but he was afraid of man, but he wasn't afraid of God. His fear, his timidity... His lack of leadership will not only cost him, but it's going to cost his family, and it's going to cost all those who he had been put in charge to lead. All of them are going to suffer because of his lack of leadership. Verse 24, 
Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. But if the princes hear that I have talked with you, and they come to you and say to you, Declare to us now what you have said to the king, and also what the king said to you, Do not hide it from us, and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I presented my request before the king that he would not return me to Jonathan's house to die there. Then all the princes came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he told them according to all these words that the king had commanded. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been heard. Now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken, and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. And so Zedekiah says, hey, don't let anyone know that I've talked to you about this stuff. And Jeremiah he acquiesces to the king's request to keep mum about their conversation. And now the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapter 39, verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate, Nergal, Sherezer, and all these other guys with funny names, um, with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. Verse 4. So it was when Zedekiah the king of Judah and all the men of war saw them that they fled and went out of the city by night by way of the king's garden by the gate between the two walls. And he went out by way of the plain, but the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him to Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. Interesting when you read that. It says the king and the men of war fled. The soldiers, the guys that were supposed to, you know, be the first line of defense, the guys like the Marines, you know, they fled along with the king who's supposed to lead his people. You know, it reminds me of that cruise ship there that, that sunk, you know, off the coast of Italy or somewhere. Remember, who was the first off the ship? The captain. It's like, what a coward. That's, you know, in old days, it wasn't like that. The captain would go down with a ship. And I'm going to get to this in a little bit, but you see, there's something changing in our culture. There's something happening. And it's not just one, one captain on a ship. I think it's a, it's a worldwide, global thing that's occurring. How pathetic is it the king and the men of war flee? But that is exactly what's happening today. Men are fleeing from their God-ordained responsibility to lead. I think a lot of what's going on in the world is a result of men not leading. I'm not trying to be chauvinistic, but I honestly believe God is judging the men of this world because they're the ones that are abdicating their responsibilities. Remember now, Zedekiah was placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah rebelled against the king. Jeremiah had prophesied that Zedekiah would see the king's face. And that's exactly what happened. Then the king of Babylon killed the son of Zedekiah before the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah, those princes that he was afraid of, right? Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. So if you get the picture, it's kind of gruesome. 
But the last thing Zedekiah saw with his eyes was the king that he rebelled against and the slaughter of his sons. That would be the last thing. That would be the last visual image that he would remember. And then Nebuchadnezzar plucked out his eyes or gouged out his eyes. to put him in chains and led him off to Babylon. Verse 8. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And that happened because Zedekiah refused to surrender himself to the Babylonians. The whole city and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem paid a heavy price. And I see that great same parallel in our own culture. I think our nation, not only our nation, our culture, is on the verge of destruction. And the men who should be leading their families... They should be the spiritual leaders in the churches, in their families, they, who should be the moral leaders in culture. They've abdicated their roles for fear and for stubbornness, not willing to submit to the Lord. And we're watching with our own eyes our children being destroyed by the enemy. We're watching it. We're watching our wives being destroyed, marriages falling apart because men are not willing to lead. And we're watching churches that are falling apart, becoming ineffective because there's nobody leading and our nation is being decimated by the enemy. And I hate to... This is a good Father's Day message, right? <laughs> Not really. It'd be kind of a down Father's Day. but um, You know, and I think too often we're too weak and too spineless to stand up and take the hard, unpopular positions of righteousness. I really think that's the problem. Verse 9. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away to Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look after him, and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. So apparently word got back to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, there's this prophet of the Lord that's been telling them all along just to surrender to you. And so the word gets back, and so Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, find Jeremiah and take care of him. So Nebuchadnezzar, I have a hard time with that name. So Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, whatever, the captain of the guard sent another guy who's hard to pronounce, Nebuchadnezzar, Rabsaris, uh, Nergal, Sharizer, and Rabmag, that's an easier one, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. Then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shephan, uh, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. So the Lord, you know, in the very beginning, God called Jeremiah to be a prophet. God said, don't worry, you know, you're going to have opposition, but I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. God watched over Jeremiah. He kept his promise. Now, granted, things were not easy for Jeremiah. I mean, it wasn't easy to take that tough stand. I mean, he was suffered for it, thrown into prison, almost died. You know, he was mistreated. He was misrepresented. He was considered an, a traitor, you know, to his people. So it was tough for him. It wasn't easy. But God promised and was faithful to protect him and to take care of him. 
And in the end, he wasn't destroyed, and God blessed him for his faithfulness. Verse 15. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men whom you are of, of whom you are afraid, for I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. So we have this Ebed-Melech. He had courage, but notice that the prophecy says, even though you're afraid of the men, those men that you're afraid of, they're not going to wipe you out. You see... This is an important thing to understand. Ebed-Melech had courage, but courage isn't the absence of fear. I think that's sometimes we get that. Oh, I can't be afraid. No, no, no. Ebed-Melech feared. But the thing is, he went ahead. He wasn't paralyzed by fear. I mean, yeah, it was scary. But he went ahead and did the right thing in spite of the fear. That's the difference. And as sure as God's word was concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, so was his word to Jeremiah, excuse me, to Ebed-Melech and to Jeremiah. Now, earlier I mentioned that I think this is a global thing that's occurring worldwide. I, I want to read this article to you, and you may go, well, this doesn't even fit with what you're talking about, but I'll explain it at the end. This is from Debka, which is an Israeli newspaper on the web. And it's titled, Russia Staffs Mediterranean Fleet, Turkey Weighs Payback for Syrian Bombings. And it says, Russian Naval, Navy Admiral Viktor Cherkov said Sunday, May 12th, that the process is underway for creating a permanent staff to run Russian fleet operations in the Mediterranean Sea. Speaking at Sevastopol, the Black Sea Fleet home port, Admiral Cherkov said staff of 20 officers were already in place and the Mediterranean deployment would comprise five to six warships and their service vessels as well as possibly uh, as well possibly as nuclear submarines which say our military sources are armed with nuclear ballistic missiles. Debka's military sources, the new, uh, said this, the new de uh, permanent deployment is the next Russian step for safeguarding Bashar Assad's regime in Damascus and deterring military attacks on his Hezbollah allies and Iranian threat interests in the three-way in their three-way block. Moscow is also announcing loud and clear that Russia is finally restoring its military presence to the Middle East in 2013 after the last Soviet squadron exited the Mediterranean in 1992. The Russian naval step came 24 hours after two car bombs reduced to rubble the center of the Turkish town of Rehanli near the Syrian border, killing 46 people and injuring scores. Turkish ministers at the scene Sunday openly blamed Syrian military intelligence for the attacks, planning, and execution. This raised concerns in Moscow that Ankara was preparing to deliver a serious reprisal, possibly in the form of an aerial or missile assault on Syrian military targets. Russian tacticians uh, reckon that after Israel's two airstrikes against Assad's regime targets, the Tayyip uh, 
Erdogan, that's the leader of Turkey government, could hardly avoid direct action without appearing to be failing in courage in the eyes of the Turkish public. Some action is doubly pressing as Minister Erdogan prepares to travel to Washington to meet President Barack Obama on May 16th and present him with evidence that Assad has used chemical weapons in his war on Syrian rebels. The Rehanli bombings and Turkey's potential retaliation sent a fresh wave of alarm across Syrian, the Syrian neighborhood. Once again, Israeli Air Force warplanes thundered a Sunday across south Lebanon and over Hezbollah strongholds in the East Bekaa Valley near the Syrian border. Given all these circumstances, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's chances are virtually nil of getting anywhere in his trip to the Black Sea resort of Sochi to persuade President Vladimir Putin to hold back advanced S-300 anti-air missiles from Syria. He can expect to find the Russian president driving full speed for arms deals, not just with Syria, but also with Iraq, Yemen, and Sudan. Putin, now listen to this, Putin clearly regards Obama's decision to keep the U.S. clear of military involvement in the Syrian conflict as an open gateway for a Russian military comeback to the Middle East after a 21-year absence, armed with a cornucopia of weapons for winning clients. For now, there is no stopping him, not even if Turkey or Israel were to embark themselves on military intervention. That was a long article, and I apologize for that. But why did I read that? Well, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's a great battle that's going to occur. Some people think it's the Battle of Armageddon. I happen to believe it's a separate battle. And it's not the Battle of Armageddon. It's a different battle. And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog, the Prince of Rosh, Mesech, and Tubal are going to come down against Israel to destroy Israel. And God's going to fight for Israel and defend them miraculously. Now, Rosh, the prince of Rosh, most people agree that that is actually ancient, the ancient name for Russia, the prince of Russia. Meshach and Tubal, there's some disagreement on that, but it's most likely. I was looking at Thomas Ice. I don't know if you know who he is, but great guy. I was looking at his stuff, and he said, you know, it's most likely... Michel and Tubal are most likely a description of Turkey. And so for right now, uh, you know, right now, Russia and Turkey are not in good relations. So I think there's a little bit of time. I don't think that this is describing the battle that's going to take place. But isn't it interesting that Russia is gaining a foothold again in the Mediterranean? And Putin's this guy who's, you know, he, he's, uh, he's trying to reinvigorate Russia's strength before they were, you know, back when they were the USSR. I want to read something out of Ezekiel 38, verse 10. It says, Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind. It's a prophecy about the prince of of Rosh. And you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. Now this is what I want you to pay attention to. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, And all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? 
Have you gathered your army to take booty, to, take aw- to carry away silver and gold, and to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? You've got to understand what this is talking about. This prince, whether or not it's, whether or not it's Russia, well, you, that's open to debate, but this prince is going to come down against Israel. And all those nations around are going to go, hey, are you coming down to attack? Notice what's absent. Nobody is standing up to fight him. Why? Because there's no more leaders. And I think that that is something that we're seeing. I mean, our president this week already was talking about, or they're talking about him uh, reducing our nuclear weapons arsenal. And, and, and our enemies, We believe it or not, we have enemies. They are saying, okay, hey, that's cool. Yeah, you reduce all your arms all you want. It's, it, it's an open door for them to be tyrants. And I'm not trying to get, this isn't a political thing at all. Believe me, I'm not trying to be political. This is a spiritual issue. Because you see, I think we're getting to the point where there's no more great leaders. Politically, there's just no more great leaders. And it's paving the way for one great leader who finally, he's going to have all the answers, he's going to have all the control, and he's going to do whatever he wants. And everybody's going to go, just stand by and go, oh. And I think it's, that's why I believe we're close to the last days, that the Antichrist is coming soon. But you see, the point is, where have all the leaders gone? And I think that's a problem, and it starts in our families, in our marriages, in our churches, and in our culture. Where have all the leaders gone? And I think it's a wake-up call for you, and I definitely see a parallel between what we're reading about what took place in the destruction of Jerusalem and what's happening in the destruction of our culture. And I have to ask, where are the leaders? And it's not just men. And we can just, you know, those dirty, rotten guys. (laughs) It's everybody. Nobody is standing up for righteousness. Why don't you stand up (laughs) this morning? (laughs) Literally, stand up. (laughs) They're like, man, I'm not going to sit down. I don't want to sit down.